I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche It's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Just by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science Then let them in talk up their body Another one body Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am not your host, PTF I, he, he, The other day, I don't know if you guys listened to that uh coast-to-coast pick five show he did but you see how he like kind of threw in the fact that he got a pr and a the same peloton class that i was in that was his way of taking a shot um i am your host jonathan kinchin and i am excited about this week's guest um for those who follow the game very much you knew who steve asmussen was uh, you knew who brendan walsh was and uh you knew Lafitte and Richie and a lot of the guests we've had and most of you and some of you will know of Sean Borman uh, my guest today Um, but I'm excited to let the world who doesn't know about Sean know a little bit about Sean and and Sean's profession as a professional horse player um, which I think is is a is a profession that not many fully understand what that entails and and what it looks like and, and and how to be successful at it and the ups the downs the ins the outs and uh, I'm excited to, to have Sean on uh, one of the best and, and still one of the highest rated podcasts we've ever had on the, uh, on the network or when we had Duke Matisse, another professional player, um, talk about some of his uh, stories from the good old days. And so we catch up with Sean about, uh, about kind of his transition away from U.S. racing into to Hong Kong, uh, the reasons why he did that. Um, and we talk a little bit about just, we get a little nerdy with the ins and outs of, of wagering and handicapping and, and how to be successful, uh, at, at this game from a professional, uh, standpoint. So I want to make sure I thank our friends at Qatar racing, uh, Sheikh Fahad, the team, uh, for, uh, for, for partnering with us on these podcasts and supporting uh, these podcasts and, and uh, in their journey, their current journey of, of, a, of a larger presence here in the U.S., they're already uh, at the pinnacle of racing in Europe and, and they, uh, they're, they're, they're doing the same here. Um, I'm still mad now that I think about it uh, that I didn't bet on Caravelle when she won the Breeders' Cup sprint, uh, especially because I said it that I thought she could win if Golden Powell didn't show up. Golden Powell didn't show up, and I was standing there with uh, empty hands. So uh, thanks again to our friends at Qatar. Um, look, I mean, most of these episodes, there's usually one or two uh, what, what, what common culture and <laughs> social, social settings would call bad words that are used. There's a few in here. Uh, if it bothers you, uh, I'm sorry I warned you. It's nothing crazy, but there's a, there's a few, so I just wanted to give a heads up on that. But uh, yeah, enough rambling. Oh, you know the story. Share, comment, do all those fun things. Uh, one of my dear friends, Sean Borman. Shawnee Roy, what's up? What's going on, man? Well, you know, just out here in these streets. Got me a little coffee. Um. You, you just drink black coffee. Discuss, can, I, I do typically, but can we discuss how shitty Starbucks is nowadays? <laughs> you know what's funny is like I'm a late, I'm a like kind of late to the game coffee man. So like 
I like learned at Starbucks and like basically I started with like milkshakes at Starbucks and I kind of worked my way backwards. And then I got to a point where I can, you know, I can have something that's a little bit more adult and like, you know, a little less embarrassing. Um, but I've now gone back more to the, to the milkshake version of, of coffee. Man, it, it, it's just, it's not good. Well, I mean, explain it. Why? Why do you think it's what? What do you, what's what's bad about it? Tastes it, like it tastes tastes terrible. <laughs> I mean, their regular call their black coffee is just embarrassing to begin with. But then, like, I got a I got a nitro cold brew today because we're out of power. You know, we're I'm living like a nomad and and can't make my regular good coffee. So I went to Starbucks to get breakfast, and it, it's just awful. The whole experience sucks. <laughs> there's people, there's children everywhere. Coffee's awful. I mobile order, by the way. I mean, I'm a mobile order man. Oh, I did too. And I still had to sit there for 15 minutes waiting for it to pop up. I, yeah. mean, I guess my, my, my mistake is probably um, our whole neighborhood's out of power. So I guess everybody just went to fucking Starbucks today. <laughs> <It was slammed. laughs> so, you know, people are probably using it as an office, as a daycare. It, it's just it took forever, and it doesn't taste good. Oh man, yeah, it seems like you had a bad a bad start to your morning. Um, I mean, look, I, I I should probably I probably should I'll probably warn people at the top. This is going to be I don't know where the hell this is going to go. I, I just know that um, that it's 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 in these runs of JK plus one. I I wanted to kind of you know we'll, we'll have the Steve Asmussen's of the world, and we'll we'll have the you know, the Chad Browns and the Angel Corderos and, and so on and so forth. But we'll also just have uh, uh, some of my friends that I think have interesting stories. And Sean, you know, being a professional horse player, um, I think that there's a lot of perspective and a lot of insight and a lot of fun conversations we can have. But we'll probably also have a lot of Starbucks sucks tangents. So hopefully uh, the people will, will enjoy that a little bit, Shawnee. Um, you said you were going to be salty today. Why? Why are you going to be salty? Was it the Starbucks or was it something else? That didn't help. Um, it's mainly the power situation. I haven't slept in my own bed in days. Everything's a pain in the ass right now. It's just you know I'm I'm tired. I had to figure. Out, I had to bet Hong Kong overnight Saturday at my parents' house. It's just. <laughs> You know, and then of course, you know, I don't cash a goddamn ticket, but it's just annoying. I'm just, I'm very annoyed right now. <laughs> well, Sean, let's, I think the, the first, you know, uh, I, I was going to have you in the first run of, of JK plus one before we went on vacation. And then, you know, we just never got around to it. I took a break and now we're back. And so I'm, I'm glad to finally get you on, but I think it's important to, to start. People have, have heard your voice as of late with this new series you're doing with Pete kind of inside the, 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 the life of a, of a pro player, the, what are you guys calling it? The something diary? What do you, what is it called? I think it's pro player diary. Okay. Yeah. That's nice. It's cute. That's um, but, cute. <laughs> but I, I wanted to give people, you know, I, I love it. I've been listening to it. And to be fair, like a lot of the stuff on the show, like I kind of heard it all. So like on our network, I've heard it. And so like, I don't always listen to all the shows cause I've kind of always heard them or I'm on them or whatever. So it's been, it's been fun to listen to that, but I think it's important to kind of let people know your background and how you got to this place of being a professional player. 
um, which is a word that gets tossed around quite a bit. And, and, uh, and, and it's a word that, or a title that gets tossed around quite a bit. And people have like, you know, said to me, Hey, you're, you know, you're a professional gambler, you're a professional horse. No, 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 no. Professional horse player is you is Mike Maloney is Duke and Paul Matisse. And that is someone just to be clear about the definition when we get into it here, that is someone who feeds their family with exactus tries, pick fours, pick sixes, win bets, not someone who, you know, makes money betting, but that's not their, their, their life doesn't depend on it financially. Do you agree with that? hundred percent. Where, when did you make the decision that this was going to be um, something that you did? When, when did you decide that you were going to be a professional horse player and kind of what was the journey um, from that point until now? Go. Well, um, I think it was a long journey. I, I probably was 20 or 21 when I first, you know, sort of said out loud, I want to be a professional gambler slash I didn't know what a horse player was, but I wanted to bet on horse races for a living. Um, I was at UK, University of Kentucky, pretty miserable there. Um, and just, you know, I, I wanted to spend all my time handicapping and not necessarily going to econ class or, you know, geography or whatever. So I decided I wanted a break from college and just sort of floated the idea to my dad, like, well, what do you think about me trying to do this for a living? And, you know, dad, God bless him, would support me, you know, if I wanted to do anything. So he said, yeah, um, let's, you know, try it, see what happens. And so I sort of, you know, you know, I've said in the past, I think, I bet for a living long for a few years before I was a real professional, I didn't really, you know, become a professional as, until I met Mike and, and sort of learned how to go about things in a professional manner and, and, you know, manage my money properly and my emotions properly. But I'm, you know, probably from 21 to, I think I was 24 when Mike and I started, uh, you know, working together. Um, I mean, I, that was my sole income. It was sort of a half-assed rinky-dink operation, but that, you know, I was, I was betting quote for a living for a few years. Um, well, so let me stop you real quick, just for, for, cause I know these stories, but just to keep people that I feel like I know some things I want to plug in there. Well, first of all, he's talking about Mike Maloney, who you've heard on these airwaves a ton, uh, who, who uh, is, gets lots of call outs, on this show, one of the, the, the best and biggest um, individual horse players um, in the last 50, 60 years. So that's, that's, that's who he's talking about when he says, Mike, the other thing I think it's important, Sean, that I don't, you kind of glossed over when you were at UK and then told your dad that this is something you wanted to look at. It's not as if your dad uh, was a man whom education was not important to your father's a, a doctor. So to, to go to someone who spent probably almost half of their life in education, getting an education to, to support and listen to their son, then say, 
hey, dad, I'm thinking about dropping out of college or maybe not taking college as seriously. And uh, I'm just going to be a professional horse player. Yeah, mom, mom was really the, the tougher sell because she, and she was she was a teacher. So like education is super important to her as well. Um, she wasn't super thrilled that I didn't want to finish college. Um, but, you know, a lot of it was, um, a lot of it was just sort of like a mental health decision too. I was, you know, I did back then and do now, you know, struggle with depression at times. And I was just, just really miserable. Um, so, you know, I don't think anybody, me included, really thought I wouldn't ever go back. But it just sort of stuck. I mean, I just, I got, you know, happier and, and like I knew deep down college wasn't for me. I, I didn't have any desire to, you know, finish UK and go to grad school and, and have a desk job or, or become a doctor or a lawyer or, or whatever. I just, that just wasn't in me for, for whatever reason. Um, so, I mean, they understood I needed, a break from all that I don't think it you know I don't think anybody thought I would still be sitting here 20 years later betting for a living but you know I just I learned and got got good enough to where it stuck to talk about the the, the trend you know there's a you know there's kind of I think it's I think it's fair to say like knowing your story and it, there was the kind of before Mike life there was the with Mike life. And then there's the after Mike life. Like those are kind of the three, I feel like those are kind of the three chapters of your journey. Um, before Mike, did you, did you find yourself making a ton of mistakes or are you surprised how well it went for you prior to really seeing someone else, you know, that you could then emulate how to be a professional? Sort of both, honestly. Uh, I mean, I certainly made tons of mistakes. I still do make tons of mistakes. Um, but I still was sort of surprised. You know, I was able to make money, which, you know, was surprising. Um, the one thing I couldn't, I didn't, I felt pretty good back then about, you know, the ability to find value in the wind pool, the ability to, play exact as I felt okay about pick threes and pick fours and like the horizontals, you know, the, the way that TVG sort of, I guess they still do, but back then they really just pushed those wager types and I sort of gravitated towards those things. Um, I felt comfortable enough playing those, but I never felt comfortable playing like tries and supers and like the long vertical bets. And that's the first thing I wanted to talk to Mike about when I, tracked him down, you know, we just sat down and he was nice enough to, to teach me some strategies in the trifecta pool and the super pool. Um, so it was sort of both. I mean, I, I, you know, I had almost no idea what I was doing, uh, but at the same time I was able to make enough money to survive, which, you know, I didn't need much back then. It was, um, but I, you know, I, I, I got by basically. But it wasn't until Mike and I started, you know, he invited me to sit with him every day, sort of around 
the Derby of 2004. And that's when I really started to understand, like, you know, what real professional horse players do. And, like, how how you structure tickets and how you think about value and, most importantly, how you learn to lose and deal with the inevitable drawdown. Um, that's when it really started to, you know, that, that you know, watching him play on a daily basis back then, because he was, I mean, he was betting tons of money back then. And so, like, being able to just stand there with him at the window and just sort of observe, like, every now and then I would just wander up there when I knew he was going to make some bets. And I would just watch and listen to him call his tickets to Tony, the teller. And you just learned so much doing that. Um, so, I mean, that's, how'd, you, how'd you track him down? Uh, sort of funny. I, so my dad and I went to our accountant. Like he's our, our family accountant has, is also a good friend of my parents. So, we went to talk to him and during the course of the conversation, he sort of looked at dad and insinuated that he took care of somebody else that bet for a living, but he obviously couldn't tell us who it was. Um, but he sort of insinuated that dad, my dad was a pediatrician and he, he insinuated that dad sort of took care of this person's children in his practice. And like, I don't know, maybe, six months later or a year later or something, there was an article about Mike in the, in the racing form. And I just sort of put two and two together and called dad and said, do you know this name? And he said, yeah, that, you know, that has to be, that has to be the guy. Cause I definitely took care of a, you know, Mike Maloney's children. And so I just looked his number up in the phone book and called him, called him and talked to his wife, Dana and told her who I was. And she was like, yeah, he'll talk to you. Um, your dad was so great to our kids that, you know, of course he'll talk to you. And like, come to find out, like Mike had no intentions of <laughs> talking to me. He's just like, no, I'm not, I'm not talking to him. But like, I think Dana sort of forced it to. Um, so we talked, you know, I went to his house and, and sat down with him and just went over to like some tries and super stuff. It was, I want to say it was right before, it was, it was like this time of year, I think. It was right before the spring meet at Keeneland was getting ready to start and I was able to sort of take some of his ideas and strategies and just have a great meat betting that came in. Just killed it. Made more money than I'd ever made. Um, and then, you know, we would text or call back and forth. I would call him every few months just to pick his brain and then you know, maybe a year later is when we sort of hooked up full time and he, he asked me to sit up there with him and, and help him, you know, do some stuff. So it was sort of a long, it was probably like an 18 month process, I guess, from when we first met to when I was sitting up there on a daily basis. What, what was that working relationship like? I mean, what, you know, it was, from what I understand, it was, it was kind of a give and take, obviously. Um, you know, Michael, Mike has no problem telling you he's a little bit old school. You know, he still uses the paper form every day. He's, he's, uh, he's not like non tech guy, 
you know, he's, he, he, he's, he's got some tech about him, but he's obviously not as tech savvy as like our generation would be. So there's some give and take there. You know, what was your working relationship like with Mike through that time that you guys were working together before you, you decided to kind of step away for a second? Sure. No, he, uh, so at first, I mean, it sort of started as, you know, I was basically, I mean, he was like a mentor, you know, he was my mentor, but it was also sort of, I was sort of an employee. Like he paid me a little bit each week to take trip notes and, um, make figures and, you know, enter stuff into the database, just, you know, stuff he didn't really have time to do or, or necessarily want to do. Um, so, you know, he gave me a little income and I got to sit there and learn and, and bet. And, you know, it just sort of morphed over the years and sort of morphed into more of a partnership um, as I got better and started betting more and, and contributing more. But yeah, I mean, Mike was, you know, he taught me to, you know, trip races the way he did it. Um, so everything was sort of standardized and do figures the way he did it. And I was doing, I was taking, you know, pretty, in hindsight, pretty bad trip notes on my own before I met him um, and doing a different type of figure on my own. But so we just sort of all got on the same page and he taught me the way he wanted things done. And, you know, that just gave him the ability to, you know, have more information more proprietary information at more places to bet um, and, to, and to, to help drive his handle. So that's sort of the way it started. And then, you know, it just gradually, you know, he gradually stopped paying me and, and you know, I just started betting full time over the, over the years. I always like the stories of kind of the good old days. I remember when, when we had Duke on, he was like kind of, you know, because the game has gotten progressively tougher um, for, for various reasons. Um, I think the, the, the amount of information that's out there, uh, there's, there's not just one or two figures now. There's like six or seven. So a lot of times, you know, there's not fast races don't really get mi- missed. I think people watch replays more than they ever have. I think there's more in- intelligent replay watchers as the common horse player than there was in the past. Um, I think the technology in terms of, 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 of betting tools and using probables and information is, is another thing. And then also the, 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 the presence of, of the computer automating wagering is, is why the game has just gotten a little bit tougher. But I think it's funny, like listening to Duke talk about how like back in the day when they were hanging out in the casinos and in Vegas and getting this crazy rebate and, and, and having these wild steak dinners because they just had so much kind of points uh, accumulated. And, and I think people always thought those stories were interesting. And, and, and I, I love to hear, because um, what's one of my favorite racetracks to hang at, about how, how kind of you and Mike's setup was uh, at Keeneland. Oh, it was the best, man. I mean, it was, it was so, you know, looking back on it, it was just so fun to sit there every day and have you know friends and just because people would just you know mike's office was just like a hangout place so like his buddies would stop by um there was always 
multiple people in there, it seemed, especially like Friday afternoon or, or Saturday afternoon. There was always people hanging out and, and just, you know, just betting races together. It was, it was great. And then there's just the general like racetrack character, you know, guys that didn't really hang out with us, but just hung around Keeneland and just did wild shit all the time. And there, there was, there was one dude who was not a, not a good dude. Um, but he was just known as like a, you know, he would scam people. He would, he would gather money down on the, on the second floor and be like, yeah, we're going to, let's bet this pick four and get 400 bucks. And he'd go bet the ticket and then he'd take some scissors and cut the serial number off the bottom. He'd cancel it. He'd bet the ticket and cancel it. And he'd cut the serial number off the bottom and give the guys this bogus ticket and then just bounce and be like, I I got, you know, I got an appointment. I got to go. Let me know if we hit it. I'll see you tomorrow. We'll, you know, split our winnings tomorrow. And he just, he was pilfering their money. You know, these guys, I mean, there's all these characters, same guy, same guy gave his, gave the payphone number up on the third floor where our window was at the end of the hall, there was his payphone. He gave that number to his employment officer. So like that phone would ring off the hook and then Tony would go answer it. And it was somebody looking for this clown. Like, is he there? At, is he there at work today? And kind of just like, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's probably here somewhere, but this isn't a this isn't work. <laughs> I mean, there's just all kind of, you know, hilarious, you know, characters and uh, just. I mean, I don't want to use anybody's name, but. You know, there was just some some of the weirdest betting things. There was a guy that like sold a coal company from Eastern Kentucky for a bunch of money and decided he wanted to be a professional better. And so he, I mean, he was betting for for maybe six months. He was probably betting as much or more than Mike was, and. He was not good. I mean, it was like just a not even slow. It was a quick bleed. Um, he didn't last long. But there was a day when he swept the super pool at Oaklawn. He played like one two with one two with all with all, all six ways that could come. So, like, the last ticket was all with all with a one two with one two. And this was back when it was a dollar super. I think there was only one super a day at Oakland in the last race. And it came like 10, 8, 7, 4. Bomb, 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 bomb. And the super paid to the exacto. And so because he had the all with all with one, two, with one, two ticket, neither key hits the fucking board. <laughs> he cashes that super, the whole pool, because he's got all with all and then a paid to all in those last two spots. Oh my God. So like, you know, that's how inefficient some of these pools were back then was like, you could sweep the whole damn thing and be a hundred percent wrong, but just have bet it in a way to, to, to cash. That's funny. It reminds me. Um, there's a story when I was in college, I don't know if I've ever told you this story before, but I was in college <laughs> It's funny, like now, like I, how much money I was chasing down forever. 
you know, I had like one of those, you know how it is. Like we had one of those like offshore, like sports.ag or sports, sportsbook.ag, like wagering accounts that took horse bets, but they had all those weird rules with the caps and all these other things. And, and the place was based in Antigua. And so I played a pick four one day at, um, at Oaklawn. And this is just funny, just in general, like you, the pick four, it hit, it paid three out of four. No one had the pick four, which I would, that just simply just does not happen anymore with pick fours. Like someone has the pick four, like it just doesn't, especially at a place like Oakland. And I hit that pick four, three out of four, and it paid, you know, 600 and something dollars for the three or four. And the, the sports book, like wasn't paying me. And so I was, I kept sending, I was sending emails to them, like quoting the rules. Cause the rules said, we will pay the track. We will pay track payouts. And I'm like, well, the track payout on the pick four was this, like, that's what it was. And they were trying to say, well, no, but you didn't hit it. And I wrote a bunch of emails and I finally got paid like $600. And I remember like feeling like I hit the lottery that day, which is hilarious. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, just like, you don't, it's, it's funny. Like you, you don't hear about supers paying to the exact day anymore. Like I, like I don't, I, I mean, I don't, I can't, I, I, where, where does that happen? Uh, I can't remember the last time anything like that's happened. I mean, I've never, yeah, I don't know if I've heard of super so much lower. Yeah. yeah. And the teams now that's just not going to happen. Um, yeah, they used to. I mean, there was one night at Turfway, Mike swept the super pool when it was a 10 cent minimum. So, like, right, so I think the first season they did 10 centers. Um, I remember he swept the pool one night. But I mean, that kind of stuff just doesn't, it's impossible now. There'd be, there'd be 10 tickets. As a, as a professional player, as someone who's seen how it was and how it is now and someone who looks at it every day, and this is a topic we've talked about before, but, you know, what the hell, let's dive into it. How do you feel about lower minimums? How do you feel about 10-cent supers? How do you feel about 50-cent tries, 20-cent pick sixes? What, what If you had it your way, um, not just what's best for you, but what's best in general, what would be your, your thoughts on low minimums? I think they need to go. I think they, you know, in hindsight, they were just created to, they were created for computer teams. I mean, that's, you can spin it all you want to and say, you know, it gives the little guy a chance to play in some of these pools, and that's just bullshit. It just, they were created to give computer teams an efficiency edge. So they, you know, in my opinion, they've ruined, they've ruined the game, basically. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's I, impossible. It's impossible to compete with those teams, and they've made the pools so efficient, and they have every advantage from, you know, computer power to getting in at the last second to, you know, they they get to act like market makers in the financial markets. But they don't, they don't make a market because they're the last ones to act. So they're the only ones that get accurate pricing information. Like they should be forced to stop betting at a certain point or forced to get their liquidity in earlier. But they get, they get to get in at the last second and 
they're the only ones that truly know what prices these horses are going to go on because they're setting the fucking prices. Yeah, in every pool. And and I think that I think that the, I think I think a lot of people understand that. I think it's hard for certain people to get to to get that point. Um, not all, but I think for some, and it's like, you know, it's look, my father was a, you know, my dad would go to the track with a hundred dollars, right. Or, or sometimes like $60. And he, you know, I remember we'd be driving to the track. This is before I knew what I was talking about. And he'd be like, he just be like, you know, I'm going to got this 60. I'm going to turn it into 300. We're going to go home, bro. We're going to go home, turn it into 300. We'll go home. I mean, he didn't, you know, no form, no nothing. And he would just be paying, playing these 10 cent supers and, 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 you know, and, and trifecta boxes with our address. And there would be times obviously where he would hit it. But the thing that I think that I learned at that point, or, or once I started to figure out how this whole game worked, I looked back at those moments and I remembered the times that my dad was fortunate enough to hit it when he was simply just throwing darts, he wasn't getting paid enough for the combinations he was hitting. And the reason he wasn't getting paid enough was because of what you've just described. The computers take all of the market's inefficiencies and they whittle them down by efficiently wagering on all of the combinations that are possible in, in an out, for an outcome. So, you know, you actually, before we started recording, you brought up um, the, the, the trifecta. Um, was it in the Gotham? Mm-hmm. In the now, Gotham. People always ask. People, you, you hear it all the time. You know, you got horse player. For, I mean, I think that this, you know, horse players will, or, 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 you know, whether they're novice or whatever, they'll say, did you see the pick four paid? It only paid $800. It had two 40 to one shots in it. This is why it only pays $800. It's because there is an, if there's the inefficiencies that used to be present in this game, when Mike it was, was sweeping pools at Turfway and, you know, that, that, that coal man <laughs> was, was, was getting it down to the exacta, the all, all exacta, the super down to the all, all exacta because there was meat on the bone. There's no meat left on the bone. And that's why when you also have to combat a higher price gambling, uh, a higher price for your wager than other gambling games have, it's why it makes it a very hard game to get involved in. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, you know, here's just a little anecdote that really sort of opened my eyes about two or three months ago. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get a live odds feed from, from the Hong Kong Jockey Club and to build, you know, to build some, some wagering tools. And they offer on their website free free to anybody um you can get on there and they will give you trifecta probables for they'll give you the top 20 most bet trifecta combinations overall in the race and then they'll give you the top 10 with each horse on top so like one two three one two four one two five just the most bet with each horse as a key basically and so I reached out and asked the odds feed guy, I was like, you know, can we get all the trifecta problems? And he said, well, you know, they used to, they used to do that. They used to provide that in the, in the odds feed, but they don't anymore. I was like, well, that's stupid. Why, you know, 
why did they do that? What was the rationale behind that? And he said, you know, they felt like it gave the computer teams too big of an advantage. And I was like, hmm, you know, that actually makes sense. You know, they, over there, they do things to help the little guy. You couldn't get the industry in this country to take away an advantage from the computer teams to save your life. Like, they just won't do it. So, you know, it's just a completely different sort of mindset in Hong Kong, and that's why the pools aren't as efficient. Yes, there's computer teams, but they they do things to help the little guy, too, because they understand once it's all computer teams betting against each other, there is no game. Like, when those when the markets are so efficient, there's no little guys left, the computer teams are just going to turn off their computers because they're not horse players, they're mathematicians. And they'll just go play in the Bitcoin market or the stock market or whatever. So like, that's what, that's the biggest issue I have with the way this game is run is they, 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 they want the handle today and not 20 years from now. And I don't think they realize that 20 years from now, there's just not going to be any fucking handle. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh you know it's it's kind of the we we've talked about it you know with the with the with the rainbow situation and the 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 kind of jackpot wagers is like yeah I mean and because a lot of the racetrack people that run racetracks will say like you know you'll say oh this isn't great for the game and they'll say well look what it handles look what it handles look what it handles and it's like well yeah but it, it handles that a lot of the times because it's the computers firing away and because there's kind of like a misguided public that, that, that these jack, these, these, these jackpots and these, 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 these um, carryovers are this great opportunity. And unfortunately they're not as good of an opportunity as they're presented as. And unfortunately, like, you know, I, I mean, I like, you know, like my dad or like my dad's friends who would go to the track and they would say, oh, there's this, there's this carryover at, at so-and-so today. Uh, I'm going to play it. And then they would come up with an $84 ticket. And, and I, and I want to tell them so badly, like, man, you're not going to hit that with $84. Mm-hmm. Not, because one, you're not that great of a horse player and a handicapper in general. And for two, if you do hit it, if you, do, if you are fortunate enough to get lucky enough to hit it, you're not going to get paid what you need to get paid for the other 78 times that you didn't hit your $84 tickets. And eventually you're going to get ground out. You're going to get ground out of the game. And, 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 and there, to your point, there needs to be a little bit more of a focus on handle 10 years from now rather than handle today. And I think that that's a mistake that we make. That's a huge mistake. And there's no, I mean, they, they don't cultivate new players. They don't, they don't really do anything right. So, um, I mean, I guess the contest sort of has, has brought a new wave of player in, but I don't know how much money they actually handle on a daily basis, the contest players. I mean, they seem to stick to contests. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, 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 the contest with the letters – like 
the contest with the letters, they the, the sport the sports books in Vegas don't care that they're there because no one in the room bets there. They don't they don't bet. It, I remember they used to give that hundred dollar wager, that hundred dollar uh, hundred dollar chip at at, mm. uh, at the the contest of letters at the hotel <laughs> with the letters at the TI. And like the the TI was just like, no, be, just it's not worth clear, it. You're not going out there this year for that. Nah, no, I'm not going out there. I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm not going out there. Hey, you know what's funny though? They uh, someone sent me a picture yesterday. They they posted like some picture of some group of people, and the guy front and center of the picture had my shirt on. Yeah, I saw that. He had the Southall shirt on. Uh, well, they'll, they'll never get rid of the stain of JK. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote, I'm gonna quote, retweet it with a link to, to Old Smoke to sell a shirt. Is that this weekend, by the way? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think <laughs> yeah, I think so. Never been so excited to not go to Vegas. Um, oh, God. but yeah, I mean, it's like, it, but it, to the point is uh, the point that I was trying to make is when it comes to those, the contest players that have now the, the live money contest players, I think those turn into real betters. Um, but I think a lot of the contest players that are kind of sucked into the $2 win place thing, I think there's an opportunity to, to transition them into being real players because they are handicapping. They are being a fan of the sport. They are watching it. They are this, that, and the other. The problem is, is that the contest with the letters, the finances of it are so poor that those people are also getting run out, chased away from it by trying to compete in, you know, one in 64 contests. They just kind of get chased out of there for the, you know, and it's, it's the same idea to be fair as the issue that we have with like the quote unquote low minimums, the jackpot wagers. It's like thinking about handle today and not handle 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a big problem. Sean. So, Let's 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 jump back to your story because I eventually want to get to your kind of train your current transition to a majority of what you're doing is Hong Kong. And there's a couple of things. One is that for the last four or five years, especially with social media, there's been this like kind of almost annoying presentation of like Hong Kong being so much better and did Hong Kong this. And, and I think that like the way that it was kind of presented initially, it just was kind of like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, you're smart, you know about Hong Kong. But there is a lot of things that they do right that I know have driven you to spending a lot of your time there. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the things that you like about Hong Kong, just kind of as a as an explanation reference for like people who are interested as to what's so great about Hong Kong. But let's let's talk about when you let's before we get there, let's talk about when you walked away, why you walked away, what you did and what brought you back. Um, You know, I guess what was that, 10 years ago? Yeah, probably close. So I got really burned out sometime in the late 2000s and I took a year off and then came back for another, you know, a year later I came back and I was still working with Mike at this point. Um, And while while I took that year off, I still, you know, did stuff with Mike. I I kept the database up and I think I might have even still done figures. I'm not 100% sure, but I just, I got sort of burnt out with betting. Um, Then I came back and I don't know if it was 
one year, two years. I, I, I really don't remember. But when when our when we got pregnant, um, you know, I, you know, Mike and I would sit there, and we would sort of guess like what stuff would pay, like you know, what's his try at Suffolk going to pay based on the odds. And what's, you know, what should this exact to pay? And this, what, what is this super going to pay? And you sit there and you watch races day in, day out at all these tracks. You get really good at sort of determining those things. And you, you get a sort of a feel for what things should pay based on what happened. And then after a few years, you know, we started noticing, gosh, you know, that tries light. It's like 10% too too short it's, you know that's super's five percent short and stuff just stopped paying what it should pay and it was very clear after a while that the edge was going away it was just getting whittled away little by little by little and you know i i would get back like a dollar and seven cents for every dollar i bet back then I wasn't getting a rebate but I was able to you know grind out seven cents of profit for every dollar I bet and when it was very consistent um you know some years it would be six cents some of the years would be eight cents or nine cents but like it was just very consistently hovered around a dollar and seven cents and when you're sitting there and stuff stops you know starts paying five to ten percent less that's the edge that's gone and you know that was a big reason why I stepped away when I did but I mean the main reason is I held that baby girl in my arms and I just was so in love I didn't want to I didn't want to not be around her I just wanted to be a dad um, so like the combination of sort of feeling like my edge had, had gone away and becoming a father just I just didn't want to bet anymore. I didn't want to do it anymore. And it just, it, it just becomes sort of a grind and I, I was tired and I didn't, you know, I just wanted some time off. So I took, um, after Maggie was born, I took maybe three or four years off, three years, maybe. I don't, I don't know exactly how long it was. It was a while. I mean, it was a good long while, but I still kept, you know, I still kept up with Mike and I still, you know, entered the stuff in the database for him and I'd go out once a week and see him get the info and you know I kept up with the game and I, I sort of did all that strategically because I figured at some point I'd, I'd probably end up going back even though I did explore some other things when I was off um, and that was in, in hindsight that was really smart to sort of keep up with things and, and you know keep at least one foot in the game um, and then when I decided that, you know, it's time to go back to work, I mean, I, when I quit, I quit. Like I wasn't going back in my mind. Like I boxed up all my shit. I got rid of a bunch of stuff and I just didn't, I didn't really want to go back initially. Um, but then there came a time where I was, you know, I, I wasn't going to accomplish what I wanted to if I didn't go back to work. So when I made the decision to go back full time, um, 
I didn't necessarily want to do it like I had in the past with Mike, not because of Mike. I just, you know, they had, Keeneland had just decided they didn't want anything to do with sort of simulcast wagering and seemingly horse players. Um, so they moved his, his office from, you know, that sort of beautiful, well-lit office that overlooked the back patio area at Keeneland to like a, you know, underground bunker at the Red Mile with no windows, um, you know, a casino downstairs. It just, it, it, it had almost no appeal to me other than, you know, Mike and his dad were there every day. And it just didn't seem like, you know, Mike had worked a deal out where Keeneland would pay for for the data. And it just seemed to me like, you know, the way Keeneland was sort of trending away from being as horse player friendly as they were 20 years ago and to more of a sort of a cost-cutting, money-saving situation, like, it didn't seem to me like that was a sustainable model either to where, to, to rely on Keeneland paying for, for all this stuff. So I, you know, when I decided to go back, I just made the decision. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to have to do it on my own or I want to do it on my own. Um, and yeah, so I think it was probably 2017 that I came back full time and started, you know, it was right around this time of year. It was like March of 2017. I decided, you know, I started betting full time again. I got a little office and just went went right back to it. What What are some of the, you know, before we get to Hong Kong, what are some of the expenses that you had in terms of data um, as a as a pro player, as someone, you know, that, you know, you said that Keelan was helping with that back in the day with Mike, and then it ended up being a thing where you guys had to kind of cover your own. I mean, what what are those expenses? Like, what what are some of the expenses that 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 you had to you know that you had to deal with and you deal with now? Well, back then we had uh, well, Mike had Bloodstock Research put together like a little custom. Um, program for us where they took their um, sort of top of the line past performances and customized them so we could input our own figures and trips and biases and stuff and they would display right in those past performances so that that program you know to get every track every day which we needed I mean, it was very expensive. I want to say it was like twelve or fourteen hundred dollars a month in data, which I mean, you know, you, you stretch that out over a year, you're in for almost twenty thousand of just data files. Um, not to mention, you know, like printer ink and paper and and all the other stuff you need to, you know print your past performances and stuff out. So, I mean, it was pretty expensive. That that situation was, was pretty expensive. And, you know, Mike was betting so much and the people around Mike were betting so much that, you know, financially that was a good situation for King. And they, you know, they made a ton of money off of him, I'm sure. But it, when it came time to like, you know, when I came back, Keeneland still you know they're not like a rebate 
place. They're not, you know, Mike had worked out a deal with him years and years ago. But even that seemed tenuous to me at the time. But I mean, you could bet through Keenan Select and get 1%. You know, thanks. Um, but I could bet through someplace else and get almost 10% blended. So like it did, it made zero sense to, to go bet through Keenan through the windows anymore. So, you know, but like in terms of like expenses now, I mean, you still have to pay for data files and result charts and stuff. And that's still pretty, I mean, it can be very expensive if you do, you know, some of these big packages. But I mean, like right now I'm paying, I think the unlimited text charts from Equibase are like 800 bucks a year. And it's another 1500 a year for like entry information. And that's, you know, okay. I mean, all that stuff, in my opinion, should be free because, you know, they give it away free on, on their website. But then if you need it in a format to, to like program with, they charge you, charge you, which, you know, okay. Um, but the biggest expense I had was just programming, like to build sort of a similar database and, and proprietary racing form that, that we have been using. Um, and that, you know, programming is just ridiculously expensive. Still, I mean, I, I did the same thing for Hong Kong and, and, and built that, built that database and, and website. Um, but I mean, I'm probably in for six figures easy in programming at this point. Over the years, not like all at once. But. Right. So when you came back to, so you came back, you started again um, after your little break, and, and then you came back, you were focusing on what you were focused on before, which is, you know, the, the idea of having proprietary information that other people don't have everywhere. You know, it was never an issue about, about you know, playing, like you said, playing a, a try at Finger Lakes or, you know, playing Mountaineer or whatever it might be. Um, what kind of pushed you away from, I mean, I know the answer, but I'm at, what kind of pushed you away from, mm -hmm. from those places to kind of the two days a week of uh, Hong Kong? I mean, a lot of it was just, um, you know, what we talked about before, the, the efficiency of the pools. Uh, when I came back in 2017, I, I was fortunate enough to, to really start back on a, in a big way. I mean, I hit, I hit the, I hit a try on like Tampa Bay Derby Day, real good, and got off to a good start. Then I hit a uh, one of those jackpot pick sixes at Gulfstream for like fifty thousand immediately. So I, I really started off well. And, um, you know, that sort of propelled me um, to to be able to bet more that that first year. Um, and I had a great first year back. I mean, I killed, I had the best year I've ever had that first year. Just cashed a lot of big tickets, had a lot of good insights. Um, but I think cashing those tickets sort of hid the fact that things weren't quite what they used to be. You know, I had a great year, but the next year, it was a great year built on just huge scores. You know, the day in, day out sort of churn 
wasn't necessarily there. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't like it used to be. And it sort of just hid the, it hid the fact that the pools had gotten so much more efficient than I was used to years, you know, a couple of years before. And then over the next couple of years, like 2018, 2019, it just, it became so apparent that things weren't like they used to. Like I was still trying to bet like it was 2005 and, you know, churn a lot of money in tries and supers and, and it just became real apparent that that wasn't quite feasible anymore. Um, and then, you know, I started looking at my results in each pool and I was just getting killed in those pools. I mean, I was losing 20 cents on the dollar in, in each one of those pools. Um, and then, you know, so the efficiency of the pools sort of, sort of cooled me on the, on the U.S. game. But re what really sort of pushed me into Hong Kong was COVID. I mean, when all the, when all the tracks shut down here, there was just nothing to bet on except Fawner in Hong Kong. And I'd always been interested in Hong Kong. So, you know, I just thought that was a good time to sort of explore it more since there was nothing else going on. And I took Pat Cummins out to dinner and just said, you know, give me a crash course on, you know, on this, on this racing product. And, and he started showing me all the info you can get on their website for free. Um, all the vet info that's available and the workout info and you know it became real apparent at that dinner that like it's a closed circuit of horses so there's only 1300 horses on the whole grounds there's probably 20 or 30 trainers you've got to learn same with jockeys and it just dawned on me like you know you could really get a feel for what's going on there very quickly um learn these horses, learn their tendencies, learn the trainers and their tendencies. And it, and it, and the, the sort of getting up to speed wasn't going to take that long just because it's so, it's such an insular, you know, isolated area. And I started, you know, getting up Wednesday mornings and watching the races at Happy Valley and just sort of paying attention to like the payoffs and the, the odds board and, it just was very clear those first few weeks of paying attention that it was just a, a, a better racing product from like field size to television quality. You know, the feed is better. Um, the replays are better. The info is just, you know, they just give you so much data to work with. And it, you know, then I was just like, I've got to start betting this stuff. And so I, I started betting it and um, hooked up with John Camardo, who I think has been on these airwaves before. And, and he's, you know, sort of helped me, you know, like you, you described Mike earlier as sort of a tech guy. And I'm probably worse than that. Like, I, I can't do shit on a computer. So I needed help with, like, trying to figure out how to make figures for this stuff and just getting sort of up and running. So John really, John Camardo really helped me get up and running with like figure making. And, you know, I would, I would do the figures and then he would sort of, I would do the figures for the individual races, send them to him. And then he would calculate them for each individual horse and, and send that stuff back to me. And then he even created like a, a sort of an Excel spreadsheet that, that served as a racing form almost that had, you know, trip notes and 
sectionals and figures and all kind of stuff at the beginning. Um, but it's, you know, it's just, it just really was apparent that that was a jurisdiction where you could still sort of spread around in these pools and, and churn a bunch of money, but also, and mainly, you could make huge stores over there. I mean, every day they run, you have the opportunity to cash a gigantic ticket if you're right about something. You know, if you if you have a good opinion and structure it properly, there's so much liquidity that you could just catch huge tickets. And that's how I've always played. I've always played to to have those big pops. Um, and then, you know, when I started thinking about just the the lifestyle aspect of it, we had just had our second child. And, you know, it became sort of apparent that I could, I could work fewer days a week and actually be around on the weekends, see my kids, and still have the opportunity to make as much, if not more, money. And that was ultimately what pushed me to where I'm, Betting, I'm betting 100 percent of my money in Hong Kong. Like I haven't bet the U.S. race in months, and it's mainly just lifestyle. I mean, I can I can go to Maggie's basketball games on Saturday, and I have to worry about missing work. Or um, there's much less to keep up with when you're only tripping two days a week, um, and and you know trying to keep up with. 20 different biases across the country in the U.S. versus two a week in, in Hong Kong. It's just, it's a lot easier. It suits my lifestyle better at this point in time. And the pools aren't as efficient. Now, it sucks. The time, the time, you know, the, the shots in cards on Saturday night are terrible. Um, what time, what, like what time other. Eastern, what time Eastern are you doing Happy yeah. Valley and, and shots in? So Happy Valley is the Wednesday track. It's fine. They start at the earliest for me at 5.45 Wednesday morning. And then when the time changes here next week, it'll be 6.45. And that's like early, but it's not, you know, that's fine. I actually quite enjoy those Wednesday morning cards. Um, Shot 10 will start at midnight most of the year and then towards the end of the season at 1 a.m. Sunday morning. And those are the ones that are like pretty difficult just from like you know like I said I like to do things with my family on Saturday and that's usually a pretty full day so I'm I'm pretty tired by the time Saturday night rolls around and then I've got to be up all night trying to make good decisions and, and, and gambling and that can be quite difficult and it's really sort of sort of amplified to me that my 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 ticket structure and my my thought process is nowhere near as good as it used to be when I'm when I'm betting, um, and so that's you know I mentioned earlier the the betting tools thing I'm trying to try to work on that that's the primary reason why I want to get that accomplished is because I just don't make I don't I don't write good tickets anymore personally I, I don't especially Saturday nights I just don't have the the mental ability to sit there at three in the morning and really grind on trifecta tickets and you know i'm just i've gotten lazy and tired um so those are those are difficult um difficult cards but it's it's 
worth it. I mean, you can make you can make a lot of money on those two products. So, of the so, what would be kind of like your wish list of 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 three things that you've kind of seen over there um, that if you know you wish kind of we could do here, um, and, and I'll start with one while you're thinking about those. Like, I mean, I've always kind of thought that more a more kind of a more compact schedule, like kind of you know a little bit more kind of like let's not run on. And I understand that some of the small tracks need to run on Mondays and Tuesdays, and uh, and I and I don't want to take anything away from small tracks, but I do think that 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 the existence of small tracks probably does hurt the overall game, um, overall, just because it just kind of dilutes it a little bit. Um, but or or if you know it's, or have the small tracks run early, it's, it's crazy to me like the lack of night racing we have, you know, the, of like quality mm-hmm. night racing. What what are some of the things that you feel like that you wish that we did or that you would think that would be beneficial that Hong Kong does? Well, I think the best thing that they do, honestly, is their class system. So they have they have basically five classes, class five, four, three, two, and one, and then they have group races. And each horse is assigned an official rating by the jockey club. And that rating will change based on results on the track. And you can't, you have to sort of earn your way up or down the class ladder. So, you know, class five are the worst horses over there. And in order to earn your way up to class four, you've got to produce on the track. And in order to earn your way down the class five from class four, you've got to lose, basically. But it can't just be, you know, the trainer can't say, well, we ran, you know, we're in class three and, you know, we didn't run that great. I'm going to just, you know, drop from the equivalent of 50 claiming down to 10 to get a win. You can't do that. Um, so, like, the form of these horses is more established. There's no weird drop downs. There's no, you know, it, it just makes for a better gambling product when you know the horses are sound and they're dropping in class for a reason, not because they're injured or something. And then that sort of dovetails into the vet information that they have. Like they have full transparency. Well, I mean, much more transparency. I'm sure some things you know, go on over there, but they'll give you detailed reports on each horse. Um, you know, if a horse runs poorly, they typically will, will say, you know, it'll say like unacceptable performance. Horses will have to barrier trial, pass the trial before they can run on the track again. So it gives you a lot more confidence that your horse is coming into this race sound versus well, this horse hadn't been seen for six weeks shipping into Aqueduct for parks for, you know, John service. You don't know what the hell's been going on with it. Um, so I think those two, like if I could, if I could start with anything, it would be like just a complete overhaul of the class system in this country. And then the vet stuff, but the vet stuff, like there's no way you could get it done in this country. There's just, there's too many racetracks. There's too many independent vets. I mean, all the vets in Hong Kong are, are employed by the jockey club. 
They control everything. Um, but that just leads to more transparency and more um, information that's reliable. And then, you know, the other thing they do really well over there, and we in this country don't get access to a lot of the bets that they have, like if you're in Hong Kong, but they have some pretty interesting bet types. Um, and their tote system, which is sort of all in-house, they've built is remarkable. I mean, they can, you know, they merge pools and which creates more liquidity and more opportunity. Um, but some of the bet types they have are really interesting. And I think that could go a long way to helping in this country too. They, they, they have a lot of bets that create churn, um, which is just better for everybody. But they don't, and they only rebate in certain pools over there. So, and they only rebate on losses instead of overall churn. So, like, you're not incentivized to churn a ton of money, even though they do churn a ton of money. Your rebate comes from just losing tickets, which I think is probably a better way to keep the average fan around longer than creating the sort of ultra-efficient pools that we have with churn. Well, that's interesting. I didn't, what, I think I know the answer. What's the, is the, is the, what's the, uh, the, the, like the really good churn wager that you like? Is it the Omni? Is that the one or is it a different one? Um, I mean, the Omni is a good churn wager. I think they bet more in that than, than most things. The, I think the Quinella, and the, they call it the Quinella place. Uh, we call it the Omni or there's some other term for it here, but those two are the highest, um, highest churn bets over there. And the Omni is basically you, you pick two horses to be in the top three in any order. And then the Quinella is the Quinella. Like to, so you can run like, you can run, you can run first and third, you can run second and third. Correct. Um, and then they have, you know, and that's, you know, one of my friends, you know, got interested in, in betting those Happy Valley cards on Wednesday mornings too. And that's all he would bet was the Omni. Because it's pretty, it's an easy bet to understand. Um, you can, you know, you can still get 20 or 30 to one on some of those combinations if you, if you're playing long shots, but then you can, on real obvious combinations, you can still get three or four to one sometimes, but it's just, you know, and then, you know, over there they have stuff, you know, they have like something they call the all up, which is sort of a, it's like a synthetic parlay almost. You can, you can bet multiple you can basically create your own wagers you could you know say i want to bet the one horse in race three to win i want to bet the four horse in race five to place i want to bet a quinella in race seven and play it all on one ticket as like a sort of a parlay situation um and they've got a tote system that can figure all the payouts out and this stuff and merge all the money properly so that you know i think that bet it's really interesting. There's no way we can do it here because our tote system's so bad. But I mean, you know, every but how many people bitch and moan about the maiden claimer in the pick four, or you know, like 
what, it's a stakes day at Gulfstream. Why the hell is the last leg of the pick five this crap maiden claim? Well, you know, you can sort of eliminate that and create your own sort of situation with the, with the all ups. Um, it's just a separate pool. So, I don't know. They just they they do a lot of things right. It's not perfect. Um, I do think it's drastically better than here. But some of the stuff is just, you know, I don't know if it's if it's doable in this country because the industry has become so fragmented and so, I mean, just so big with no real oversight on a national level that there's just no chance you get anybody to, to get along enough to implement some of these things. I think California would be an interesting experiment because the racing out there has gotten so bad and one company owns two thirds of the, you know, tracks. You know, I think Stronic could implement sort of a Hong Kong like system at, at Santa Anita and Golden Gate and, and really have some success if they wanted to. But then again, like you'd have to change the class system. You'd have to, you know, implement a lot of that stuff they probably aren't willing to do. And so, um, I don't know. Yeah, they are kind of on an island, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, you there. don't get a ton of, sh you know, the, you get more shippers now there than you used to, I guess, with some of these programs, especially at Del Mar. But I mean, it used to, I mean, it's a pretty sort of, isolated racing jurisdiction in terms of major racing i mean you know there's nothing else in that part of the country that's that you would consider major racing they could really overhaul it there and, and create a much better situation if they wanted to yeah uh, you know i had a conversation recently with someone who was like interested in like you know kind of wanting to pick my brain about being a professional player which I, you know, like I said at the top of the show and I'll reiterate, like, I'm not a professional player. Like I don't, I don't do what you guys do. However, I'm around enough of you guys and have had enough conversations with you to think that I can speak on how to do it. And um, the one thing that I said, and I'm curious what your thoughts or what your recommendation would be, but like, for me, I told them in order to be a professional in this day and age, meaning you're playing every day and it, your, 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 your food on the table, your family depends on it. I think that you have to have a propri proprietary edge in handicapping or a proprietary edge in wagering, preferably both. But if you just think that you're a good handicapper and a pretty good better, that's not enough, in my opinion, to have to be able to have a, a sustainable, successful career as a professional horse player. I think you got to have an edge, whether it's, a type of figure that you're making that no one else is getting from a handicapping standpoint, some sort of um, tech edge and evaluating races and horses and uh, whether it's a, uh, you know, some sort of program you build based on workouts or, or, or trainer stats that are presented differently than the world is getting. You know, I've always thought that a trainer stat Bob Baffert being 30% blinkers on means nothing to me. I want to know the average figure edge that Baffert has blinkers on. I think that's something that's actually proprietary that you could use that could be beneficial. You know, Chad, first time turf. Well, how much faster do they get switching to the turf or how much slower do they get switching to the turf? 
And then betting wise, like, like you said, you're working on some betting tools using different things to bet more efficiently to kind of compete against the computers. I mean, do you think that, that, that that's a, a, a true statement that you have to have one of those in order to be a successful professional better? Or do you think that there's another road that, that someone could, 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 could go down? I do think it's true. And I would say, It's a conversation I've had with myself a lot. I, I don't know. I don't know how how important efficiency is unless you're running a program. Um, just because you know, like you know, we have access to some tools. I know you and I both do that that are great tools, but it still seems like you you can't be as efficient as these big teams are. It's just fucking impossible. Um, so I would almost go the other way. I, I would say, yes, you, it would help to have some proprietary information. I do think there's an edge there. Um, but I would think if, if you're willing to spend the time to sit in front of computer and, and racing feeds day in and day out and just watch the pools. I do think there would be an edge in, in learning how to bet in ways that the computer teams don't. Because if you sit and if you really pay attention and you're willing to do that, which I am not willing to do this anymore. It's one reason I don't bet much in the US is I, I'm not willing to sit in front of these TVs anymore. But if you are, you can see what kind of horses the computer teams like to bet and and you can see the money moving in a way that I do think it's possible to combat that um, from a wagering standpoint. But I think you almost have to do it the opposite of what they're doing. I mean, they're trying to make, you know, a penny every time they bet and just make tons of bets. I think you need to go the opposite way and make fewer bets if you're if you're just sort of a non-computer player, um, and and worry sort of less about efficient ticket structure and more about sort of the you know your your idea of crushing their souls, um, you know find the bad favorite and just throw the fucking thing out and, and construct a ticket to where you know you could really score if that if you're right about that favorite being bad, um, stuff like that. So. You know, I would not recommend anybody try to be a professional better right now. Say the same thing Mike told me 20 years ago. It's, you don't really want to do this. If you're bound and determined to do it, I think that's the way you've got to do it, is to, is to just watch the pools, watch the liquidity, or almost worry less about handicapping. Um, Handicapping is important because you've got to cash tickets, but it's almost more important nowadays to learn which favorites are going to run out than, than who's going to win these races. Um, you know, but that, you know, that said, it's very difficult, man. I mean, go back to that Gotham race, like that try paid about 20% of what it should have based on those odds and field size. So like, if that was your, you know, if that was your opportunity to score, it still sucks to get, you know, you're still going to get shorted a lot of times. Um, 
it's just it's just very difficult right now. And it's it's you possible. Know, it's yeah, very difficult. It's funny though, like we were talking about it before, like we talked about that, and then also it's like you know these 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 mandatory payouts. We we always you know we find ourselves uh, as horse players that are looking for an edge. You feel like you have to participate in them, but so often it feels like they aren't hit when you hit them, they don't pay what they should. And I, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Cause I think yesterday what happened at Gulfstream was, is, is an, is an interesting topic because yesterday it paid really good. Um, and I feel like the reason that it paid so well is because you avoided the sequence avoided any single there was. And, and I think that that's, I don't care if the horse is one to five or the horse is six to five. If singles don't get hit, it feels like these things actually do pay well. But in a six-race sequence at a place like Gulfstream or Santa Anita or Naira or Keeneland or Del Mar or Saratoga or wherever, or Churchill, it doesn't feel – it feels like it's very hard for a single to get hit within that sequence because of how much information's out there, because the entire landscape – of horse playing has become there's so much there's so much information available it's hard to not have a single get hit in those sequences or or in these stakes races that show up or these maiden races where there's all this info about a first time todd or a first time baffert or whatever it might be but i think that's an interesting topic is that like the reason i feel like it paid so well yesterday was because none of those horses were singles and in fact if you look at every race the horse that would have been singled and each leg was beat that's the key is what you just said is the horses that were obvious singles got beat and you know there was a there was a six up in hong kong about two or three months ago um that there was a, a horse that was going to be you know three to five probably on the tote i think it was three to five on the tote and it was like the obvious key for this pick six play. And he acted up on the, in the, you know, on the track right before the race and ended up getting scratched. And the, you know, the, the sequence came like really obvious winner in the first leg, a 20 to one shot in the second leg that had really good figures and, and, you know, was a spread race. So it wasn't like that 20 to one shot was a real separator. It was just a pretty obvious horse you would use. You know, favorite wins the third leg, second or third choice wins the fourth leg, just pretty obvious results. And then this favorite scratches at the gate. And there was a, a second horse in that race that was sort of the obvious second horse. And he ended up winning, paying like six to one. And the public made a third horse in there the favorite. So all that liquidity that was on the obvious single went to this bad favorite and then a you know five or six to one horse wins the last leg but that was like second or third choice in the race right and so this pick six was completely obvious like if you make any kind of serious play you could hit this thing if you were willing to take on that heavy favorite that's crashed paid over a million dollars and i was just like holy shit like how did this pay what it did and it was just 
all liquidity. It was just the obvious key horse didn't, you know, in this case, didn't get beat. He scratched at the gate. But it was just, it overpaid so much because that horse must have been one to nine in the pick six game. And that's how you get paid nowadays is if you can find that horse and beat them, if you can figure out like who the key for everybody is and find a vulnerability in that horse and just are willing to take them on, that's when stuff happens like it did at Goldstream yesterday when, when stuff is, you know, out outsized by probably four or five times what it should have been. Yeah, and I and I think that there's I want to kind of explain that that idea a little bit more. Um, as I feel like I see it, I see that as a couple of things. There's when you beat a single like that, and this might be obvious to some people, but when you beat a single like that, you are beating all the small ticket players. So you're taking, you're, you're scraping all of that small ticket player money because those people, small ticket players had to single that horse in order to get the coverage they likely needed in the other races, right? With like, with a, with a, with a synthetic race mixed in there. With a with a with a maiden turf race in the last, where you're going to have no information, looking at the probables, where there's a first time Chad, a f- two first time Clements, a trip horse for Brendan Walsh, and a first time Todd, you're going to have to spread in those types of races. And so you knock out all the small players, small ticket players, excuse me. And then the other part that I think is sneaky there is that when we talk about efficiency from the computers what they what the computers are doing is they are betting more money on those short priced horses. They might be using 10 horses in the race or eight or six or five, but they are putting more money on the short price horse because they, they want to have, they want to get paid the same, no matter what happens. They want to churn a lot of money. They want to get all their money back, pick up as much as they can and then, and then take their rebate. So when, when no singles win, that that really takes a lot, a big chunk of all of their money out of the, you know, it leaves it in the pool as well, which is why these these situations can come up. But like I said, they're very, they're, they don't happen very often. They just don't happen very often where this happens because at least one single typically wins in every sequence. And yeah, I think that's right. You know, and it, and it's it's hard. It's very hard to combat. You and I have talked about this before, and I want to know if you what you think about these rules. We discussed these rules probably like two or three years ago. Uh, the first summer, I was entirely too, which was entirely too undisciplined to use these rules, and I've tried to do a little bit better with it now. Which is these rules that I had kind of made up. We had talked about it before, so I, I think you had an in, input on it. Where I said I wasn't going to play multi-race sequences, pick fives and pick sixes mostly. If in half of the races, I did not feel one of these three ways. Okay. So in half, so of a pick five, I needed to have three. Um, in a pick three, I needed to have two. In a pick six, I needed to have three. So I wanted to have at least half, or I would at least err on the side of going above half. I wanted to have a race. These are the rules that half of the races had to qualify as one of these. I had to single, like ice cold single. I had to completely toss the favorite, not use the favorite at all, not use the favorite at all, or only use two horses, only use two horses. Like one of those 
three had to qualify for half of the races. And I felt like that would lead me into a path of playing in pools in which I should be playing in rather than just playing the early pick five at Saratoga because it's the early pick five at Saratoga. How do you feel about those rules? Do you, do you, do you see flaws in any of them? And is there one that you would add as we like kind of talk about uh, that idea? No, I think they're smart. I, you know, when I sort of did my reevaluation of, of my game, you know, last year or the year before, whenever it was, and I really started to study, you know, my results and all the different pools I was betting, it became real obvious that the pools that I bet, like the try and the super, where I was I was trying to score, yes, but I was also trying to churn money. I would, you know, I was too spready. Um, those pools I was getting killed in. The pools that I bet where it's typically one or two combinations where I have real opinions were the pools that I made all my money in. And, you know, that was like win bets, exact as daily doubles, um, pick sixes. And, and you know, that's because I typically will only play pick sixes when I have those singles or have like, like what you're talking about, like a real opinion in through two or three, maybe four legs. Um, you know, I had a great, you know, great ROIs and all the bets that I consider sort of opinion-based bets versus churn-based bets. And so I've basically tried to eliminate those churn bets that I was just getting killed. In. Um, so I think, you know, I think those rules are good. I think, I don't know about the one where you just have two horses. Um, I would say, you know, I would just say it depends on, on what the two horses are like you, you probably don't want to use the favorite and the second choice you might just want to pick between those two and just cold single if that's if those you know if that's your opinion um but again like with all, every sequence is different it just depends on you know if one of your strong opinions on a 10 to 1 shot in a six horse race where you you know you know you're meeting a favorite you know you're getting great value then it's probably okay to use the favorite and second choice in another leg if it locks the race up. Um, but, you know, the, the way I'm trying to approach, especially horizontal plays nowadays, is have a strong opinion in, you know, in the pick six, it's usually I need at least two singles. The pick three, it's probably at least, you know, probably two singles. One, sing one strong single in another race that I'm not super deep in. Um, just, you know, like you said, like 30 to 50% of the sequence, I need to be able to just, you know, lock up with one or two combinations. And then around that is where I try to get efficient. I try to, you know, the races where I need four or five horses to lock it up. That's when I'm trying to come back and say, okay, if my six to one single wins the first race and I'm five deep in leg two, I need to have the favorite 10 times. I need to have this random long shot once. I need to have the, you know, third choice four times. I'm, that's where I'm trying to be efficient and just get through legs at different increments. Um, so I'm trying to sort of meld like a kill bet approach and an efficiency approach in most of these pools right now instead of all 
kill bets are all efficiency. And I'm just trying to do, you know, do both of them to where if I'm right and I've got the other wet legs weighted properly, I'm really going to score. You know, one thing I, I see you do um, when we talk often and, and I don't do as much as I should. And I think the reason I don't is because of a point you kind of, kind of glossed over earlier, which is like the ability and the, the understanding of being more efficient because we, we have, we have learned to wager more efficiently there. You, you, you can be more spready than if you're just cavemaning or even more spready than if you're just ABCing, if you're multiple ticketing, if you're, if you're level, if you're wagering at a high level of efficiency, you can use and include more horses than you could if you were doing the other two methods. But the problem is, to your point, is that you become too comfortable and then next thing you know, you start spreading way too much. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I want to do, which is, is, is one of the few positives that came from playing in a lot of $2 win place contests, is that I do have the ability, and I know it's funny, and, and you know, that from the TV stuff and just talking in general of me being a chalk-eating weasel, those, are all, those things are all true. I do have the ability to find a six to one shot that in contests I used to use as the only horse I would play in a contest at six to one. And those horses won a lot. I, 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 I could hit with those horses. I could hit with a 10 to one shot, but I have gotten away from singling those horses and sequences, allowing those horses to be huge equity boosts within my sequence where if I could just single the six to one shot, not use four other horses, I could have that pick six four more times. I could have that pick four four more times. And those are the scores. Having a pick six four times with a six to one shot you singled are the scores that make it where you can beat this game. But I've gotten away from it because why just why, why single the six to one shot? when I can efficiently treat the six to one shot like he's even money and then fade the even money shot, even even money shot as if it's six to one and still catch the ticket if I'm right or if I'm wrong, excuse me. And I think that I, I, I have to like, to your point, I, I kind of have to pull away and, and merge the idea of efficiency with crush their souls, trust in your, in your, in your handicapping, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I, you know, the, the, it, gets, it gets really easy to be too spready, at least it does for me, in the ABC method and some of the other tools that we, we've used. Um, it, it just led, it, it led me to use marginal horses because I thought I could price them right and, and you know, weight them properly. And I, it just, it became real obvious quickly that like, I can't weight those horses nearly as well as my competition can. So there's just no point in using them anymore. You know, like seahorses, unless the damn seahorses, you know, 30 to one, and it's just like a little angle thing, like a, you know, a trainer stat or, you know, a trainer switch or something that, you know, you're just sort of really speculating on and it's a huge price. Like, I see no reason to use seahorses anymore just because it's, you know, if it's the fourth or fifth most likely winner 
but there's nothing really changing about the horse, I, I would just rather use the most likely two winners or the most likely winner instead of these marginal, you know, sort of bad opinion horses that I think I can weight properly. Um, it just let, it was leading me to bet too much money into, into, you know, even if I was hitting tickets, it was like, okay, well, I spent, you know, $2,000 and I hit this thing and I got back 4,000. That's not, you know, long-term, that's not sustainable. That's, you're just going to get killed doing that. So I'd rather bet $200 to get back the 4,000 and be wrong a few times. Cause I know eventually I'm going to be right enough over time to make up the difference. Yeah. That's, I got, I got way too comfortable. I've gotten way too comfortable and in, in, in like that whole idea that I used to kind of make fun of a lot, which is like that, being willing to lose. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that there needs to be, you, there has to be a willingness to lose. Um, because if you're, if you're trying to protect yourself from losing all the time, you're giving away too much equity. And, and to your point, like on that, you know, spend 2000 on a sequence, get back 4,000. Like, yeah, that's not, it's not a sustainable way of doing it. Especially because like, because of your spreading too much, what happens in those situations is that you're, you know, you say if you, you spent 2000 and you got back 4,000, you know, say you hit the pick five, five times. And that's what got you to that 4,000. I think the point is, is that if you didn't use that 30 to one C, you didn't use that favorite defensively as like, even if you priced it correctly, you, instead of having that five times, you now have it 15 times or 10 times. Mm -hmm. And instead of 4,000, you're picking up eight or 12. Now that is something that is more sustainable. It does make more sense, but but I think that, that, that that's one thing that, that you know, it, it's funny. It's kind, of a, it's kind of the gift and the curse of like becoming more efficient as a wagerer has made me a better wagerer, but it also has come with me kind of, kind of picking up some bad habits that I have to then mm-hmm. kind of, I'm starting to have to peel off. And that's another thing that I wanted to kind of point out to you that I, that I, that I was talking to someone about the other day. Actually, I think I was talking to, to, to G about it is like, one thing that's also happened to me because I have played so much and because I have seen so many races and watched so many races and handicapped so many races and seen so many scenarios. And I would imagine that you've watched and seen probably three to five times more than I have. I can now find a way I can design a way that any freaking horse in a race can beat me. I can see that way. And it's not me being scared or me being, you know, like, or being like dramatic or, 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 or being pessimistic or anything, but I can see the scenario in which any horse can then now beat me. And I can also see a scenario in which any horse can then lose. And it makes me use horses that I shouldn't use because I have this, in you know intense library of of ways to get beat yeah no i think that's true and i think the opposite is also true like i've found you know i'm i'm way too i can find bets way too easily you know like i done it so long and seen so much that like you know it's too easy to sit down and say oh well shit this horse you know, he's 21, he can win, I can envision this scenario, blah, 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 and then all of a sudden, you know, what really should have been a no bet becomes a bet, 
you know, that happens to me all the time. And that's why, you know, my best scores throughout history have always been with like five seconds of handicapping, like where it just jumps off the page. This horse is going to run huge. He's going to be a good price. And then, you know, it's when I'm really like grinding on the handicapping aspects of things, I'm probably doing things wrong, honestly, because, you know, you just start to create scenarios. Like you were just saying, like, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? I need to cover this. I bet, you know, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, you bet too much. I actually did, I actually did this last Wednesday. Um, at Happy Valley, where I, I sort of went over my limit just because I was sitting in front of the TV and, you know, made some stupid, stupid marginal bets that I shouldn't have made just because, you know, what the hell else am I going to do? I'm just sitting there. Um, and it, it, so, yeah, I think there, there, there is, that's why, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier about, you know, handicapping versus wagering. You know, the best bets are the easiest ones to see. So, so at this point in the in the process, like why spend that much time handicapping? I'm not saying it's not important, but I think if you're just starting out and you want to play this game at a high level, study the wagering side of it and study the the pools and the liquidity side of it ten times more than you do handicapping. Because as you said earlier, there's so many different figures out there. There's so many. There's trip note services now. There's, you know, there's pay services. There's there's so much shit that's out there that didn't used to exist from a handicapping perspective. That like you can get up to speed on handicapping in two days and be just fine. You know, like there's just not that much different stuff out there unless you're willing to to do what Paul does and make your own stuff. You know like that but even then like I, I i'm not making my own u.s stuff anymore i haven't made figures in u.s in months because i'm you know because i wouldn't bet it i do think there was still an edge with them but i don't it wasn't worth the time so you know study the pools man just sit there and watch the pools learn which favorites are vulnerable and, and just have some sort of past performance to look at so you know what you're looking at and can start getting ideas on why they're vulnerable, but that's what you got to do, man. Yeah, you know it's 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 funny because like, uh, if, look, I'll just be very honest. This is a story from from recently, where you know, look, I I, I, I I'm on air on the weekends, right? And uh, there's you know there's times I have Austin on the weekends and and I'm and you know I don't when when I'm on air he just hangs out and plays video games or chills or whatever for two or three hours that I'm on and I have a lot of breaks I can go check on and make a peanut butter jelly sandwich whatever do whatever and but in the mornings it's like I try to like go do something with him you know we'll go to the park and play basketball or we'll go eat or we'll go do something whatever and there's a day recently where I didn't get to I didn't get to like really sit down and handicap the races that I had, I was on TV for. I mean, I, I, I look, I, I looked at it and I have such good trip notes that I can kind of, I don't have to watch a bunch of replays and I, I, you know, I, so whatever, but there was a day where I went through and like kind of, kind of fast capped to your point, like, you know, open it up. All right, here we go. Okay. Who's gonna get the lead. Okay. Where the figures at, 
Wellis Horse drawn outside, fast paced figures, comes in third off a break. Okay, circle, boom. Like, and that's what I was doing. And I wasn't really looking at prices. I wasn't beating myself over the head with, oh, this horse could do this. This horse could do that. Oh, what about this horse? What about that horse? Oh, what about this trainer? He's sneaky. Oh, what about, you know, I didn't do any of that. I just went through and looked at what I know a good horse looks like and what a good bet looks like and what a good opportunity looks like. And I had an outstanding day. I, I you know, I had a six to one, a five to one, a four to one, a, 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 an eight to one. Like, and I, and I, I was just boom, 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 boom. And that was just a reminder to me of like, I, I do have, to, I, I kind of have to not stare at these races the way that I have been staring at them all the time because it, it will, it, it's, it's, it's creating too much doubt in what needs to be more instinctive because I have enough. It's like, a, it's, to me, it's like, I don't, I'm not comparing myself to Steph Curry. Stay, don't, that's what I'm saying. But it's like, Steph has shot so many shots and has worked so hard on his shot. He's not thinking about shooting anymore. He just shoots. And what I'm doing is I'm thinking about, I'm dribbling. I'm, 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 I'm going to the line. Is my left foot straight? My right foot straight? Where's my elbow at? Am I hitting? Is my follow through? Am I, where am I aiming at the front of the rim, the back of the rim, the middle of the rim? Who's guarding me? Are they guarding me? Are they going to block this shot? Like Steph doesn't think that when he shoots, he just shoots. And it's why he's such a good shooter because he's put in the work. I've put in the work. Now just be a good shooter. Just go out there and shoot, let it rip. And, and I, I, you know, I think that like, it's kind of something that I've, you know, kind of come up with over the last month or so is just like, just go back to just shooting and, and stop overthinking it because I'm giving away too much equity in situations and not allowing myself to just shoot. Now, if you're a multi-race player like I am, now here's here's where this is different. I'm gonna look through a pick six sequence and see two races that I'm just gonna shoot in. I'm gonna just shoot in those two races. The other four, I do think that you do want a handicap to to protect those those shoot those shooting opinions. So you do don't you do want to consider all scenarios where you don't get beat by a 30 to one shot because you were just shooting it. I, I think that you have to kind of do a mixture of the two. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. You certainly don't want to get beat by a thirty-to-one shot if it's a usable horse. Yeah, that's how you score, JK. Hey, I'm not here trying to score, Shawnee. Um, Sean, uh, you know I, I might go to the Derby. What's really? the what are the chances that you're going to roll? None, zero. I could go to the Derby. Sure, I don't. I got no problem going to the Derby. Are you like, going? Did, go last year? did I go last year? We went to the Oaks. Oaks, that's what it was. Yeah. Are you gonna? Okay. You'll you'll dust your you'll dust off the U.S. past performances for those days, right? I mean, maybe. Um, I'm I'm thinking about you know um, somebody you know one one of our listeners over the last few months reached out to me and has expressed some interest in learning how to make figures and you know so I may. I may get get him to start, you know, making some figures to at least try to keep some stuff up. Um, but honestly, you know, I will probably play those days. But I remember, you know, both last Derby Day, where you know everybody got buried, and 
even Breeders' Cup Day this year. You know, I remember sitting and thinking at the end of both of those, like, you know, th- those are long weekends. Like, Derby weekend is so such a grind um, that, you know, I never end up staying up for the shotgun card after that. And it, you know, I really need to think about the opportunity cost of, you know, making marginal bets on Derby weekend like I did last week, last year, versus, you know, missing a Hong Kong card where I might have more of an edge. Because, I mean, quite frankly, they're going to bet more money in Hong Kong that night than they are here. So, like, from a liquidity standpoint, there's really no reason to to miss it if if I have stronger opinions and, and need to stay up, then I should probably do that. I, look, I know, you know I don't know. It's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a tricky thing. Like I, I certainly want to play Derby day and be involved, but you know, I've only got so much energy nowadays. So I need to really think about that more in the, in the years moving forward. Shawton, I know it handles a lot. I didn't know they handled more than Derby day. They handled more than Derby Day? They handled on Chinese New Year, which was what, six weeks ago, roughly. They handled 263 million US. Just on that, just on that one day? On a, I think it was a 10 race card. It might have been an 11 race card. Yeah, just on that one day. The next week they handled, and that was Chinese New Year, and it was like the first day that the track was like really open, open post-COVID because they've been very slow to open back up. So that was sort of an outlier. But like the next week, they handled 213. They handled 180 at Happy Valley the other day. So yeah, they'll handle more. <laughs> they handle more almost every day now. I, I, I mean, are we going to ever go? Yeah, we are going to go. Absolutely. They, they, I mean, they're, they're just now, they just, last week they just went no masks in public. I mean, they're, they're so slow to get things back open over there. And they're, you know, I wanted to go last year, uh, but the quarantine rules were you had to stay in a hotel for a week before you could even do any, you know, any of your business for going to Hong Kong. So like, yeah, we're going to go. Cause okay. I mean, like, especially the happy Valley cards on, on Wednesday, well, it's Wednesday night over there. Like they just look like, a blast like there's bands there's a beer garden that's always jumping there's you know tons of races to bet it just looks so fun um yeah we'll go one day i don't know we'll have to we'll have to do like a week trip and go to hit both happy and shots in though oh yeah i'm with that i'm with it i'm with it for sure hmm all right shawnee what else is popping? Uh, I don't know. You know, one thing I want to say to you um, publicly was, you know, I'm really proud of you for doing the mental health podcast. I think that's an important subject that clearly needs to be addressed more. Um, that's something I've struggled with my whole life and especially recently I've struggled more with. So that, you know, that was good on you, JK talking about that stuff well i mean look man like it's it's instead of going to twitter and just yelling at people and possibly negatively contributing to it you actually had a thoughtful conversation about it 
Oh yeah, I I uh, talk about mental health. That's that that was I've I've had to. That's one thing I don't. I try not to engage with with that stuff because it'll man, it'll drag you down. Um, well, I mean, I think that you know it's funny that you say that, it, but I think that you and I have both acted as each other's therapists at some point in the last in the last five oh, absolutely. years. Absolutely, it, it sounds like you're getting you're getting G in on that program. She's really? gonna be your, She's gonna be like like Kiana is for me. Where you're just gonna rant to her about bad beats and you know, this, all the racing bullshit. Eventually, she's oh, gonna yeah. hear it. Oh, trust me. Oh yeah, she. Uh, her and Austin both make fun of me about about speeches. They're like, oh, here comes a speech. You got to <laughs> talk about. You got to talk about your. You got to talk about everything, don't you? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's this is a nice sounding board, man, to be able to say this stuff out loud and not have to try to like, you know, keep it all in. And like, you know, it's like it's funny, especially because like you got to you have a pretty stressful situation. You have a stressful job. Like your job is stressful. Um, you know, like my father sold cars, and if he didn't sell a car, then we there, there was stress involved in that. And I think so many people's careers are the same way. And it's like man, if you don't find a way to kind of like work through that, it can just, it can just hang over your head. And so, I mean, I think the fact that you, you know, you, you say that you've battled it, you know, I think some of that has to do with, you know, who you are and the things that you've been through in your life, but also just like your career is not easy, you know? No, it's certainly not. I wish it was easier at times. And, and, and I also want to say, I, I mean, I appreciate you saying that that was a Lafitte, that was a Lafitte push. That was a, that was a, an idea that Lafitte had, um, that he wanted to, to, uh, that he wanted to talk about. And funny enough, he actually texted me the other day and said, I'm so glad we did that. Like, you know how private I am. I started to get cold feet right before we did it. Like, I, I think like Lafitte was even like thinking about like kind of getting anxious thinking about kind of sharing and, and being as, as honest as, as it was, but no, I mean, it, people seem to in, enjoy that. And like, there's this, I think, you know, there's this perception in the society, but especially like with men. And I don't think it's just men. I think that there's a lot of women that have it too, but just like that whole idea of like talking to someone about that is like, is, is scary to them, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, but you know, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay, especially as a man, to tell your other male friends that you love them. We do it all the time. You know, it's to me, it's important to let those that you love and care about know that, as opposed to being, you know, too fucking tough to say anything or you know, too too prideful to say you're sad about something. I mean, it's. I mean, it certainly helped me over the years to talk to people about about things, and that was that was, you know, not really a mental health thing, but that's that's why I approached Pete about doing the the diary show was just I wanted an outlet to talk about my current struggles, and if somebody can learn from it, great. You know, but it's that that show is mainly just for me to 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 go over things in my own head. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of saying things out loud, whether it's professionally or it's or it's personal, like saying it out loud, man, it goes a long way. And and like, you know, I, 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 I could hear it in your voice on the, 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 the diary that you're, you know, the, the pro player diary that you're doing with Pete, where it's just like just saying it out loud kind of helps you work through it. And it helps you kind of make adjustments too. like, oh, like, damn, I just oh, I see like 
Because when you have to explain it to someone else, how you feel or why you did something, that act usually makes you realize, oh, I see, I see where, where the flaw was there. And like, that happens mm-hmm. to me, like personally, like I'll, 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 you know, have something and I'll just try to like kind of work my way through it and explain it to, you know, whether it's Austin or friend or, or, or G or whatever. And it's like, oh, and that, through that process of explaining, I like, oh, I kind of figured out where I went wrong there or where it went wrong or whatever. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly right. It, 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 it makes you more accountable or it makes me, you know, that's how I feel. It makes me more accountable for my own actions and it makes me really sort of think about knowing I'm going to have to go on there and explain you know, how I did this or that or screwed this up or whatever. It, it, you know, it makes me sort of evaluate things better and, and try to improve. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, let's uh, let's. I, I want I want to end this on a on a high note with you telling us a, a, a good score story. So be thinking about that in the back of the head, in your head. But as a good transition from this conversation and in talking about like mental health, I man, like Shawnee, I, I like you, I think one of the darkest I've seen you was after this year's um, Breeders' Cup betting challenge. I, I felt like that was. And we talked about it extensively and I'll, I'll let you kind of explain why, like what it was about that moment that made it so hard in, in, in terms of legacy and, and whatever. But, you know, I think that people wake up on Sunday mornings frustrated about a bad beat or frustrated about a, a missed opportunity. But talk a little bit about w- what it was about that Breeders' Cup betting challenge that was so, so much so impactful and then, and then we'll we'll get to a, a fun score story. Um, yeah, you know that was funny. I didn't realize in the heat of it what what that was going to mean to me um, to win that damn thing. But it, you know, after you know, so I, I guess those are, those that are listening that that don't know, I. I was somewhere around the top 10 going into the classic of the, of the BCBC had like 33,000 in in prize money. And I knew, you know, I knew what Drew was going to do. So I knew what target I was shooting at. My goal for the whole weekend was get to, you know, 150,000 anyway. So I knew what I had to do. So I just made a straight $32,000 and change exacta um, flight line into Tyler. Um, and you know, lost that. You know, I guess it wasn't really a photo, but he was he was going to run second for like ninety percent of the stretch, and then got beat right at the wire. Got what a half length, maybe something like that. Yeah, and you know, it, it didn't really hit me until you know, well, I was sitting in that suite with the little Red Feather crew, and, and they all sort of cleared out and, and left. It was just Kiana and I sitting there, and I just. I just started bawling. Like it just, it just hit me like what that was going to mean to me personally. Um, had almost nothing to do with money because I had some financial backing and I wasn't even going to make that much money. It was just all, um, you know, legacy and, and an accomplishment that, you know, really over the years, especially years and years ago when I first made the decision to do this, you know, I had some people say some pretty shitty things to me 
um, about gambling in general, about being able to support a family, about, you know, not, not, you know, I would get cornered at dinner parties or whatever, and, and you know, be told I need to go to Gamblers Anonymous and you know, this and that. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of sort of baggage in my mind and a lot of people I want to prove something to. Um, and that was going to sort of put all that to bed. Like I was always going to be able to like, look, I'm out bet the best there is and won this contest and you could all just kiss my ass. <laughs> and that's just a personal thing. Like I don't need to prove, you know, I don't need to prove anything to anybody anymore. I've done this long enough that, you know, I would, I would put my record up against just about anybody out there, but that was just going to be a public acknowledgement. Um, so that, you know, that really stung and it, and it, and it sort of did put me in a little bit of a funk after that. Um, but it is what it is, you know, it, uh, you win some photos, you lose some photos. Yeah. It's, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, I remember Mike telling a story of, of uh, one of his kids kind of like telling the teacher that like his dad was a professional better. <laughs> And then like Mike kind of getting called in to have to like talk to the, to the teacher because the teacher thought that the, right. the child was just like getting confused that dad was buying a lot of like lottery tickets or something. <laughs> and then, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot more acceptable nowadays than it was back then. I mean, it, uh, yeah, there, there were some, there were some tough, I mean, even, even some family members I had to, you know, hide it from for a while just because they would be offended by it, you know, for like religious reasons or whatever. Um, but it is what it is. It's... Well, well, like I said, I wanted to end this on a high note about of some scores. And, and I realized that like, I have I, my score, like one of my favorite score stories. I probably haven't told it in a long time. And like, uh, and cause in, and, and it's, I feel like we probably, I probably have like new people listening and new listeners. So I, I'm going to give you my favorite while you think of yours, hopefully to inspire yours. But one of my favorites ever was 2015 Derby when, um, we were, we were staying, um, at this, we found this guy named, uh, Herb, his name was Herb, and he had this like bread and bed and breakfast in Louisville. We like found him on Craigslist, and we were staying there. It was like me, uh, Robert, and like a couple, like actually like, a couple of kids that I knew from when I coached. They went to school where I coached. They were all on my football team, and then they ended up moving to Austin and going to the University of Texas. And then like we just stayed in contact, like going to lunch with them and stuff. And then for their, you know, I think it was maybe their senior year, we took them with us to the Derby. And so we, we get, you know, and it's funny one night <laughs> we, you know, the, 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 they, they ended up having this guy, Herb come pick us up. We made it their job to get our transportation. They got a phone number of a cab driver. They had Herb's number in their phone too. They called Herb and said, Hey, can you come pick us up at three? And Herb's like, sure. He comes and picks us up in his like Ford Ranger. And there's four of us in a Ford Ranger with like one of those little cabs with two seats that face each other in the back. And he took us to the Derby or he took us to Oaks on Derby day. We got it right. We took a, 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 a we got like a car service to come get us. And on the way to the track, because we don't usually go to like stakes days on the way to the track, 
I called Nick Tamaro because that was a day Divisadero was running and I wanted to play, uh, play a, you know, I was going to play the pick six, but I wanted to play a pick three and I didn't look at the Pat day mile for some reason. So I called Nick Tamaro and I said, Nick, who can I single in the Pat day mile? He said, competitive edge. I said, okay, cool. Competitive edge is in there. Divisadero is in there. And then I wanted to bet Dame Dorothy who was facing Judy, the beauty, who was the breeders cup Philly and Mare sprint winner before. So we get dropped off on the backside, basically at Churchill. So we have to go through the infield to get to the civilized side of Churchill downs. And I'm with a bunch of people who don't try, aren't trying to get a wager in. So I'm sprinting through the infield, dodging tank tops and coolers and a lot of Coors lights. And um, I, I get to the, to the, to the, uh, to the front side. And if you've ever been to, to, to Churchill on Derby day, they hire a bunch of like teachers and people who don't know, aren't tellers normally. So it's still a, there's still a level of kind of uncomfortable nature on the first floor where all the kind of neophyte fans are. They don't have to be expert wagers or wager takers. And I walked to the window and I said, can I get a, a $300 pick three? And I called it whatever it was, but it was like competitive edge, Dame Dorothy and, and Divisadero. And she, the lady goes, are you sure? And I said, just hit it. And I look back and I look up and they pop from the gate and then the ticket came out and that $300 ticket paid 42,000. And this is when I was like, I mean, I, like I was like, I was a teacher. Like I didn't, I wasn't, no, I was done teaching at that point, but I was just starting a company, a real estate company in Austin. And like that 42,000 was a very, very well needed 42,000. That's my favorite uh, score story. Shawnee. Um, my, well, my favorite score story, just from a personal level was like, was right. I mean, before I even hooked up with Mike, um, I was at Keeneland with mom and dad one day and mom was like super skeptical about this whole gambling, especially for a living thing. But, um, I was able to hit like a pick four at Keeneland for like, 5,000 or something. And like that was sort of the day that she got on board. Like she saw how serious I took things and that I had some ability to make money. And like, she was, that sort of flipped the switch for her. So that's all, that score's always meant a lot to me, but and back then $5,000 was like tons of money. Um, you know, I don't, you know, one of the more interesting scores was, was right around Derby Day of like 2011, I think it might have been. Um, I'd had sort of a sort of an even year. I hadn't really made any money, hadn't really lost any money going into Derby Week. Like throughout the Keeneland meet, I just sort of treaded water. And um, I, I'd had this habit back then of never being very well capitalized going into Derby Week. So like I was always betting just on a shoestring Derby Day. And this Derby week, there was a race on Thursday. I think it was like the last race of the day or second race. It was a turf stake race on Thursday. And I just pounded it. I, you know, I got back like 25000 Had, you know, tons of money to bet the weekend. Was super excited. Loved the horse in the oaks. Blah, 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 blah. blah. And lost 14000 the next day on exam. Just went completely out of my mind. Um, didn't cash one ticket, lost the other 10 on Derby Day. And I was just like, 
fuck like what the like what in the fuck just happened here like i had this huge score and that was one of the bigger scores i'd ever had back then i just gave it back in two days and it just didn't cash a ticket it was completely wrong both days so i was sort of like mentally like i needed a break um but there was a huge super high five carryover from the Derby going into like the next Thursday at Churchill, just a regular ass Thursday with, you know, a quarter million dollar pick or super high five carryover before it was a jackpot. And so I put together this little game plan in my head of, you know, I really wanted to play this thing, but also, you know, I'd blown all that money and I couldn't afford to have like another bad, you know, huge loss day. So I handicapped the card, and there was a race early in the day that I liked. Um, so I said, you know, if I cash in this race, I'm going to take whatever I'm up and put it in this super high five. So the worst case scenario is I'll break even for the day. If I don't cash in the earliest race, maybe I just have to sit it out. Maybe I, you know, maybe I don't play it, or maybe I just, you know, buy a small percentage of Mike's ticket or something. And so I hit that race early in the day for like. 8,000. It was up seven for the day. And, you know, Mike and I started talking about that high five, and it was a you know, good playable race, had a good key horse that you could stick in there at like 30 to one, you know, something like that. And so we both, I think we played, I think we each played about 7,000 into it. So we played like a 12 or 14,000 ticket in this thing um, and hit it for the 86 maybe and got back you know we split that 50 50 at the time so you know i went from up 25 to back to even to up 40 something in like three or four days and you know it it was it was a real good lesson in money management um for me uh, after i was able to sort of reflect on all that and like learn the mistakes i made on oaks and derby day and sticking to limits and not just saying no it's oaks day i need to bet ten thousand dollars for some reason today you know but that was a good that was a good lesson a good score and a lot of lessons that came from it there's nothing worse there's nothing there's nothing worse there's nothing better there's nothing worse there's nothing better than popping before a big day where you can ah, take a deep breath and play and you know that happened to me covid covid saratoga I hit for 30. Dude, I'm talking about like at Keeneland when Rushing Fall won and when that Eclipse horse that won, I can't remember her name. Um, Rushing Fall won uh, at Keeneland. It was, it was like when they had the meet in the summer, basically, uh, because they, they, they postponed Keeneland. And she, she won some race. And uh, I'm going blank on the Eclipse horse that won the three-year-old race that won the uh, – anyways, I'm, I, my, my car is packed. You know, I got everything. I got all my mom. I got my monitor. I got everything in the car. And the last thing I did before I left was watch the last race at Keeneland, the pay leg of that pick six. And so I had a 24 hour drive from Austin to Saratoga and I hit for 30 before the meet. So like getting to Saratoga, it was just like, Oh, I can just play this thing. Right. And, uh, and then, and then, you know, and, but then what how you get a little aggressive um, I think that one actually worked out. I didn't, I didn't lose, but there's, so there's nothing better than popping before a big day, but there's also nothing worse than popping and then giving it all back. Like, oh, because you just like, you think, worst. you think you're playing for free and you're not, and you're not making yeah, bad I decisions. Always... You're just getting, getting racing luck. You're just getting racing luck. And then like, you know, 
Yeah. No, I always I always play much better when I've got a few thousand dollars in my account versus fifty thousand. Like it's you know when I have to really win and think about things, that's when I typically play the best. Hmm. Shawnee, this has been fun, buddy. Yeah, I've loved it. I haven't seen you in a while, but I think I think I have a I think I have a Kentucky trip in me uh, before the you wedding. Derby. That's not too far. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to definitely be there. I think like the Wednesday, Thursday, we got some stuff cooking that like we all have, you know, like some seminar type stuff we have. It's just going to be a it's, I just have to decide if I'm going to leave if I'm going to leave on Oaks morning and then just be like either in Texas or New York for Friday or Saturday or if I'm going to stay for the weekend and actually Oaks and Derby, um, you know, no key you gotta, no green room this year. I'm going to try. I mean, you know, it's always one that I want to get to. Um, it just depends with the, with the, with the wedding around the corner, you know, the, the, the you got some tighter, tighter strings and all, in all, uh, yeah, in all areas. Some, you got some stuff going on. <laughs> we got our trip planned, by the way, we're, we're, we're locked and loaded, baby. Man, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be fun. Can't I'm looking forward to it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, Shawnee. Some, yeah, anytime, man. We might have to do some like uh, me and Pete may have to post up in the Malfi and do like a JK wedding edition of something. Dang. Okay, I, I, I'm I'm probably not going to be able to participate. No, I'm not. I, I know. I'm kidding. No, I can do it. I can running commentary of the shindig. Running uh, we'll that's gonna... live, live one at the reception, live from oh, JK's reception. That 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 uh, that will be funny. It, it's going to be a wild group. Um, Austin's Austin's working on his speech already. It's which is it's going to be funny. <sighs> Little man is going to give a speech. Yeah, he we asked him and he was like and he he like gave a couple of one liners that were hilarious. So I'm sure that once with some with some work that he'll put into it, I think it's it'll be pretty good. So it should be fun. Uh, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. All right, man. man. I appreciate it. Yep. Love you. Do it again. Love you too, bud. Bye. Shawnee Roy. I don't know why I call him Shawnee Roy, but uh, Sean, uh, (laughs) I can't believe he started the podcast with hating Starbucks. I've seen him at Starbucks a lot too, which is funny. He he said he was going to be salty. He told me he's going to be salty on this podcast because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm tired and, and uh, my power's been out. So, he uh, he he wasn't lying when he hit us with the uh, with the Starbucks. Um, look, I, I really appreciate uh, appreciate everyone listening. You know, look, I encourage people to follow uh, Sean's new series, doing with Pete, Diary of a Pro, Pro Player. It, it's a lot of fun just to hear him kind of talk about the ins and outs of some of the decisions he made and some of the situations that he's experiencing uh, playing at a professional level. Um, you know, feel free to ask questions to him, myself, Pete. Uh, send questions in if you want some more detail about some of the topics that we talked about today. I mean, I know that we we, we covered a lot, and I, and I know at some points we probably got a little insider baseball. So if there is things that you need more explanation on or you have questions about or follow-ups or thoughts, uh, you can comment in the YouTube comments. You can obviously uh, quote, tweet, retweet, um, and then uh, comment in, in, in Twitter as well. I appreciate Sean taking the time, being so candid and uh, sharing uh, so much about his life as a, as a professional horse player, a professional gambler. And, uh, um, you know, I hope that, that people listening will understand that this was not a, a you know, like a love fest to, to, to Hong Kong. And a, but there's a reason why Sean transitioned away 
uh, from U.S. racing. And a lot of it were personal reasons. A lot of it had to do with the lifestyle. And uh, others had to do with, with, with where he felt he had an edge. And I think that he um, eloquently explained those reasons with, with actual tangible evidence. Um, I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing again, uh, Sheikh Fahad, for uh, supporting this project. And, uh, and we appreciate that and are excited to continue to watch their journey uh, in, in American racing and, and uh, looking to, to accomplish some of the things they've accomplished uh, in Europe uh, in terms of stallions and, and, and uh, a, a, a large array of, of grade one uh, winners and, and types of horses. So um, I also want to thank uh, the rest of the crew in the Money Media, uh, PTF, Drew, uh, Matty Ice, um, Acacia, Billy Michelle, Spencer, I always start to get hung up on these, but I feel like I'm just kind of like, maybe, I feel like I'm scared I've been skipping someone a lot, so I am going to look. Oh, Nick Luck, Acacia, wow. Marshall Graham, I forgot Marshall's got these uh, uh, these episodes that are doing extremely well, by the way, in terms of downloads. People are really enjoying those, so if you haven't uh, heard any of the Marshall Graham interviews, make sure you check those out. Um, they have been, uh, been doing extremely, extremely well. Um, and then, uh, if you're into, to, to, to the buggy racing, uh, make sure you check out, uh, Edison Hatter with first over. Um, I appreciate it. And, uh, thanks for listening, share, retweet, subscribe, um, questions, comments, concerns. You could probably keep the concerns. We'll see you next week. I need to know everything, who and the what and the where, I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk.